going to be in Genesis chapter 43, continuing in our series called In the Beginning. Well, when we are going through hard times, the last thing we want to do is rejoice. Sometimes when we're moping around, we're a little sad, things aren't going our way. The last thing you want that godly Christian friend to tell you is rejoice in your sufferings. You don't want them to say that. Rejoicing in our sufferings is like God telling you to suck it up and stop being such a baby. That's sometimes what it feels like. And sometimes, to be fair, that is true. We need, you know, a good, cold, hard shot of concrete. We need to harden up. We need to get over ourselves. But other times, our hearts are breaking under the weight of the suffering we are feeling. We're suffering and we're afraid and we think that everything is going to fall apart. Everything we worked for, all our dreams, all our hopes. And we think, God, why are you telling me to rejoice? It sounds kind of harsh. It sounds kind of cruel. It's it's like telling someone, oh, just get over it, man. It's not that hard. But when we read Genesis... As we know, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable... He's telling us to rejoice because He's up to something. And He's up to something greater than the evil and troubles that we are faced with. He's up to something better than we could ever hope or imagine. And He is after our ultimate good. And as we read through this passage, I hope that you see the same thing. And I hope that the character of God springs forth from this page and you see him clearly. And I have three points that I want to walk through as we get through this passage. My first point is this, that trials reveal faith. My second point, trials reveal character. And my third point, trials reveal change. Very important. Let's get to it. Verse 1 of Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, We will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm 
and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took his present and they took the double of the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Well, we learned last week that uh, self-pity and assuming that God had only evil planned was kind of really not only foolish, but sinful, faithless, untrusting. And to everyone who has eyes to see in this story, God really has only good planned for the brothers and for Jacob. But you can hear in their voice fear. You can hear in their voice trepidation. They're afraid of what's going to happen. And these characters are stressing and running around like headless chooks, wondering whether God's going to come through, whether their family will be saved. And we believe that all the bad circumstances are some major ultimate divine conspiracy against us planning for our uh, misery and hardship. When really, God is using all these trials to produce a harvest of godliness. I mean, Romans 5, 3, 4, some of you guys will know this. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, there is a big difference between those who rejoice in their sufferings and those that groan and grumble and complain and make sure that everyone knows how hard they have it. Paul is encouraging us here in Romans not to give ourselves over to self-pity and sin, but to joy and peace. Why? Because God is up to something. When we read Genesis 43, God is up to something. And it's something good, even if our circumstances seem unbearable. We know last week Jacob just flat out refused. Your brother Benjamin will not go down to Egypt under under any circumstance. He will not go down. And he's adamant, I will stop this from happening. You will not bring him down. I will not even allow it or entertain it whatsoever. And yet, in his mind, I've got enough food. We're going to make it through this famine. Does he make it through the famine? No, he doesn't. The next year comes and what is there? More famine. There's an illusion. Jacob felt like he was in control of the situation, but his faithlessness and lack of trust in God has not paid off. The famine is severe. He's in big trouble and he begs his sons, go back down, but don't go down with Benjamin. Go back to Egypt, but please don't take my son. Go back and get me the grain that I need. He would rather risk the lives of nine of his sons than risk the life of his favorite Benjamin. This is when we see Judah do something quite amazing. Last time we saw Judah, he was a bit of a mess. Last time we saw Judah, he slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. And now, here is Judah, ready to take on the responsibility. And he impresses upon his father the seriousness of the situation. He says, the Lord of Egypt, they're going to kill us as spies. Do you understand what this means, Dad? 
If you send us back without Benjamin, we are as good as dead. He said, you shall not see my face. Strongest language you could possibly conjure up in ancient Hebrew. And Jacob flops around a little more. He doesn't want to give in yet. He's still fighting back. He's blaming his brothers for the entire situation. Why did you tell them this? Why did you tell them you had another brother? You could have just kept your mouth shut. But you didn't. You had to blabber about your brother. Why are you all so stupid? Why are you so incompetent? And this, we see, Judah has matured greatly. He calmly responds to his father. He says, there was no way for us to know this, Dad. You have to see reason. What could we have done? Yeah. If we do not go down, we're either going to... You do not send Benjamin. We're going to die in Egypt and you're going to die here. Is this what you want, Dad? Is this what you want for our family? Think of the little ones, these little children we have. They need to be fed. They need food. And Judah promises that I will do everything within my power. I will bring your son back. I promise you, you can require it from me. Bets his entire life on it. What can Jacob do? He's been pushed into a corner. The only reasonable option left to him is to let Benjamin go. And we're hard on Jacob. But how many times are we flopping around and flailing and throwing things at the wall, hoping that God doesn't have his way in our life? Hoping that God's word doesn't take hold and that God kind of gives up on his plan and lets us have this little tiny thing that we're so uh, gripping on so tightly saying, God, no, you cannot have this. We push out against all reason, but this doesn't thwart God's plans. Judah says, we could have been there and back again twice in the time it took you to relent, Jacob. And God will bring us to the corner, whether it takes one or two times or even more, until we give in to his all-powerful and sovereign will. Why does God do this? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. He will not leave Jacob who's been faithlessly moping and groaning ever since Joseph died in the state of self-pity and sin. And it may have taken Jacob 20 long years, or actually at this point, 22 long years, but God brings his people down low before him again and again and again. He puts his faith back in God and he commands them, bring gifts down to Egypt. Interestingly, these are some of the same goods that the Ishmaelite traders brought down to Egypt when they had carted Joseph off in slavery in Genesis 37, 25. He says, bring double the money, an extra that was given back last time. Uh, Bring all these gifts, bring all this money, because remember Jacob's last predicament with Esau? How did he win Esau over? Those three massive gifts, right? Jacob's going to do his best. But the whole time he was praying to God, to give his plan success. Listen to it. Verse 14. Jacob has relented. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This is a statement of trust in the Lord. Remember last week I said that it seems like Jacob is acting as if he has no faith in God. Well, he had some faith. It was just on life support. And God pushed him right to his very limit to flame that faith back into a fire. 
so that he can once again trust in God. He gives his plans over to God. He accepts that whatever God chooses, let it be. This is the attitude of all Christians. Whatever God chooses, whatever his will is, let it be. Let that be our will too. If he is bereaved of Benjamin, then let it happen. It's in God's hands now. And it's only when Jacob accepted the will of God that he gave all his feeble attempts to control the future because he's stressed and toiled and fretted over Benjamin for so long. And now, finally, that he gives his son Benjamin to God, guess what God's going to give him back? Joseph. When we come before Jesus and Jesus tells you to give up your life for him and follow him, what are you afraid of? You're afraid that the life he gives back to you will be worse and not better. You're afraid that what Jesus can do for you will not satisfy you, it will not fulfill all your urges, and it will leave you in a place of misery and hardship and heartache. Why would you follow Jesus? Why would you carry your cross up to Calvary? Why would you willingly follow this man to death? But Jesus says, if you forsake your life for my sake, you will gain it. You will get your life back. Jacob trusts his son Benjamin to God and God will give him back Joseph. Brothers and sisters, is that your attitude? Are you stressing and toiling over things that aren't in your control? Gripping to them tightly and saying, no God, you cannot possibly have this because you're going to make a mess of this if I give it to you. That's not what we think in our heads. But our actions say that, don't they? That's what our actions say. The trials that God sends your way reveal your faith. They show you what you're trusting in. Because, hey, I can tell you all I want. Hey, I believe in Jesus. Hey, I trust in God, right? I can tell you till the cows come home about my internal beliefs. But how do you know whether I actually mean what I say? When trials come, do I crumble or do I stand? Do I believe or do I fold? Because a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. If your faith can't even face the most basic of tests before it just crumbles into a heap of rubble, is that really faith? Can you really trust it? If you get mad at God, if you reject Him, or if you distance yourself from Him, it shows that your faith in God wasn't strong, or in the worst-case scenario, it wasn't real. Jesus commands us to build our house on the rock, not the sand. And our life not built on Jesus will not stand, and it will not endure to eternity. And Jacob was so messed up by the grief of losing his son, Joseph, that it changed him irrevocably. The man we knew before, the man that wrestled God all night, once he lost Joseph, he wasn't the same. His faith out the door. He didn't trust God anymore that God was good. He thought God was going to take all his sons from him. He didn't trust that God was going to give him something greater. My second point, trials reveal character. Let's keep reading, verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, 
Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke to him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. Well, the brothers have made it. They're in Egypt safely. And here's where the danger begins, at least in their eyes. Not only are they received, but they're invited into the Lord of Egypt's home for a feast. And immediately, all their suspicion is raised. Uh, their, Their hairs stand up on the back of their neck. They think something is wrong. That's not what normally happens to traders who come down to get grain. It's too good to be true. They thought, oh, I know what they're doing. Come in for a feast. Come on, guys, eat some food. And then as soon as they're behind closed doors, boom, the ambush is sprung. They capture all the soldiers, uh, all the men. They turn them uh, into slaves. They take all their animals and boom, easy, done. So instead of that happening, they decide, hang on, guys, we're not going to go into the house. Let's go chat to the servant first. Let's try to work this out, see what's going on, and see what he says. Let's plead our case. And fear gripping the brothers. They're afraid. They're put under pressure. And when you squeeze something really hard, do you know what happens to that thing? Usually stuff comes out of it, right? When you squeeze something, stuff comes out of it. You find out what's truly on the inside. And trials reveal our character. Trials show who we are. Trials give us a good glimpse into the dark depths of our souls. They show us whether we're loyal or faithless, courageous or cowardly, selfless or selfish, assertive or passive. Usually we don't find those things out until God puts the squeeze on. And what came out of the brothers when they were squeezed here? Three chapters ago, we would have said something else, wouldn't we? And yet here they are truthful and show honesty. They made the choice to be honest with the servant. They didn't take the risk in order to keep the wealth back to themselves, nor did they blame shift. They could have thrown one of the brothers under the bus. We came back and, you know, uh, uh, Reuben put all the money back in our sacks. Get him. Capture him. They, they could have blamed shift, they could have done anything, uh, but they honestly and truthfully explain their situation and offer to rectify it as soon as possible. They're willing to pay the full amount back. 
And they honestly indicated that they had no idea how the money got back, which is true. They don't. They got back and there's the money. They were shocked. They were going to pay extra for the next batch of grain to try to make, make it up for them. They do what is right, even though it may cost them dearly. They trusted the rest of God. This is the same approach that we must have as God's people to a similar circumstance. We don't blame shift. We don't minimize. We don't pretend uh, that an oversight hasn't occurred. We accurately explain, explain the situation and attempt to rectify it immediately. And we see that even though they were squeezed, even though this test came ultimately from Joseph, really it came from God. And when these brothers were pushed to the limits, Joseph saw what came out of them. And it wasn't more sin, it was honesty. They didn't try to weasel their way out, which is what they did when Joseph went missing, right? But trusted themselves to God. This is when the servant says something wild. This Egyptian servant comes up to them and he says, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. He's saying, don't worry, guys, I got your money. It was just put back. It was put back by your God. And this man rightly gives the glory to God. He claims that God put the money back. It was put back, yes, by the generosity of Joseph, but the servant is spiritually perceptive enough to know that it was actually the providence of God that put them in that situation in the first place. He knows the God they worship, and he knows that it is the God of their fathers. How does this man know this? Joseph. Joseph has been busy, not just collecting grain, but sharing the news of God. Isn't that interesting? Here are these Egyptian servants who know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this Egyptian man has come to believe in this God through the witness of Joseph. This was really another clue to these brothers. They could have seen a bit of the identity of who this Lord was. What? He worships our God? You know, at least to them, their God was a bit far away, a bit, you know, not as well known as he is, for instance, today. And then to their shock, Simeon's brought out to them. And they waited a long year, and he's been in prison this whole time, and yet he seems well taken care of. He's not lacking in anything. And they're treated as highly esteemed guests of the land of Egypt. Their donkeys are given fodder, their feet is washed, the servants were tending to their every need. As they are waiting there for Joseph, who's very busy, we know, is about to return from his work. And as tests and trials come, often we're shocked that what used to come out of us when God squeezed us, starts to look very different as God matures us, doesn't it? I can remember five years ago the kinds of things that would come out of me when God squeezed me. I mean, sometimes all it took was a guy to cut me off on the road and you would be like, hmm, that guy may be disqualified for ministry. <laughs> and yet God, in His grace, has worked in my heart. You too may think over the course of history what used to come out of you when God squeezed you. But as these trials keep coming, your character changed and what came out of you was revealed to you. That's my third point, that trials reveal change. 
Let's keep reading. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And when he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father, and he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Well, Joseph makes it back to the house and immediately his brothers begin paying homage to Joseph as royalty. And with Benjamin now along their number, Joseph's dream that we heard so long ago is now fully complete. All 11 brothers are prostrated, their empty sheaves, bowing down before Joseph's full sheath. And instead of lording it over his brothers or reveling in his power over them, we see that Joseph is humble. And he inquires as to their welfare. Are you guys all right? How did the, how did the trip go? How was, how was things? He wants to make sure they're well fed, they're healthy. He wants information about their father. He wants to make sure that his elderly father is doing well. Is he still alive? Is he, is he still kicking it? He then turns to uh, Benjamin, and for the first time in 22 years, he sees the brother, the son of his mother, his full-blood brother, and he blesses Benjamin, and he says, God, be gracious to you, my son. What a moment for Joseph. The one brother who had his back. There he is, Benjamin, and he has to find a place to go weep. Imagine that, being separated from your beloved family for 22 years, Imagine the emotions you would feel when seeing them again. Imagine you have to come up, you have to uh, continue a charade like Joseph is doing. That would be hard. Joseph rushes out of the room, he finds a spot to weep. And controlling himself, he comes back out to be the man that he needs to be. And he does the stuff that he needs to do. He's built a life, he's gotten married, he has a small faithful band of its seemingly converted Egyptian servants. And yet his heart is still towards his family. He still loves them. He still cares for them. And so he controls himself. He serves them lunch. And the Hebrews and the Egyptians sit at different tables because apparently the Egyptians were prejudiced against the Hebrews. They didn't like them. They didn't want to eat with them. So they had to eat at separate tables. But either way, all the brothers were eating together. And unfortunately, Joseph was alone at his own table. And there he is eating. And the brothers were stunned. Because here is a family of simple Hebrew shepherds dining in Egyptian royalty. Amazing. And you've got to remember, this is during a famine. This is the most food that they have seen in one place in years. 
shocking to them. And this gave Joseph an opportunity to see how the brothers would react to another test. 22 years ago, the brothers were envious of the special treatment Joseph was getting with the coat and the favor of his father. Would they be envious of Benjamin too? After all, it appears that Benjamin was the favorite. He wasn't allowed down. So Joseph organized it that Benjamin would receive five times the food than all the other brothers. Had these brothers changed, would they be like, oh, why is he getting more? What did he do? He didn't even come the last trip. Were they still envious? Did the tall poppy syndrome continue? But look at the last verse. What does it say? And they drank and were merry with him. That him being Benjamin. The brothers didn't begrudge him this honor, but drank and were merry with Benjamin. They were happy that he had been blessed, not miserable and complaining. You remember the definition of envy, right? It is pain and misery at the good fortune of another person. Well, what's the opposite of envy? Happiness at the good fortune of another. And this is exactly what the brothers show. This trial revealed the change that happened in them. The same old conniving, scheming, envious brothers full of malice and greed had been matured by the hand of God and they showed honesty, integrity and goodwill towards each other. Our our passage today speaks powerfully to the reality of sanctification, a very uh, fancy theological word that just means the process by which God makes his people holy through his Holy Spirit. And God uses all sorts of trials to reveal faith, character, and change. But the most important of all, God uses these trials to show forth His immeasurable glory. Because these trials are not just focused on us. I mean, it's hard to see when you're through the trials, isn't it? You think it's all about you. But God is bringing Himself glory through them. 1 Peter 1, 6-8. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and honor and glory, whoops, sorry, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, when hard things come up against our hard hearts, it refines us, it tests us, and it produces praise and glory for God in Jesus Christ. When we face trials because of our trust in God, we show forth God as the most important thing to us. When we trust Him with our family, with our friends, our communities, and indeed our very lives, we are proclaiming to the world out there that not only that God is indeed trustworthy, He alone is good. He is the only one we can trust in. He is the only one we can look to. He alone is to be praised. And as we look to this passage, we have a front row seat to the goodness of God, don't we? We see God's good plan for the brothers, even though they can't see it. Does it take a genius to know how this story is going to end? But brothers and sisters, you may not have that front row seat in your own story of faith, but rest assured that your trust is not misplaced in God. 
Your story might not look, look nothing like it, but it's the same God who guides your steps. The same God who wrote Genesis 43 is the same God writing your story. Remember that. It's the same God that loves you, the same God that tests you, and the same God that will bring peace out of fear, light out of darkness, and good out of evil. It's the same God. Whatever you're going through, your trust in God is not in vain. Only when you understand this can you rejoice in your suffering. Whether big or small, God is up to something. The faithless among us complain, but those among us rejoice. Those that trust God, that is, rejoice. So Christian, rejoice, for it is only a little while that you are grieved so that the proven testedness of your faith can glorify and honor and praise God. And soon you will feast at the table of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we must confess that so many troubles and circumstances of our life take our eyes off you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, in many ways, we don't believe you are an author. Sometimes we think you've abandoned us or that you really don't have good plans for us. Father, I don't know where my brothers and sisters here are, whether they've been struggling, whether they don't trust in the promises and the hope, or whether they just need that extra pick-me-up, that extra hope that we can only find through your word. But Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would drive these truths home in our hearts. Would we not just cerebrally assent to these truths but would they penetrate deep into our hearts and would we believe them with every fiber of our being? I pray, Lord, that our church would be marked by one of trust in you, no matter the circumstances, no matter what comes our way. Lord, we know that you have good planned for those that love you. We praise you, Lord, for the hope that is in your son, Jesus that through the cross we see the ultimate good plan for us when we feast at your table and we sit in your court and we sing your praises. And until that day, Lord, would we continue to sing your praise, would we continue to trust and hope that all things will work together for the good of those that love you. In Jesus' name, amen.